This is episode 102 with video gate analyst and sports massage therapist who you might know as a physiology speaker or the host of the Run Chat Live podcast, Mr. Matt Phillips. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, the head coach of Strength Running, and this episode is dedicated to running form. Everyone wants better running form, including yours truly, because what doesn't it do? It helps prevent running injuries, it helps you race faster, and it gives you that oh-so-desired, smooth, sexy, fluid, graceful, athletic, and coordinated stride. To help us get a better handle on proper technique, I am thrilled to bring you Matt Phillips. He's a running injury and performance specialist from England who's written for most major publications and spoken at quite a few conferences, so you might recognize the name. He's done video gate analysis, he hosts the Run Chat Live podcast, which I highly recommend, and is gearing up for the first Run Chat Live international conference in Brighton, England this October. We're going to talk about form from a variety of perspectives, and our goal is to answer a lot of the big questions, like whether or not gate retraining is even a good idea, and if so, who should consider it, its potential risks, and how to actually go about it. We'll also discuss the role of prolonged sitting on your form, how to reinforce economical form without actively thinking about it what aspects of this conversation have changed in the last 10 years or so, and the impact of minimalist or even barefoot running on your form. You'll notice that we discuss cues to help make form changes even easier. Cues are simple ways of thinking about how your body moves through space to make better form easier to implement. Recently, I announced a form cues cheat sheet for strength running subscribers that goes into more detail about the three most effective cues that can improve your technique. It includes instructions for how to execute each cue, when and for how long to execute each cue, tips to make each cue easier, and pictures of me in short shorts racing with sunglasses. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can get the guide at strengthrunning.com slash cues, and I'll send it right on over to you. Without any further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Matt Phillips. Hey, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It makes a nice change to be in the this seat instead of on the other end. I know. Well, I'm always excited to speak with other podcasters. We're kindred spirits. We know how things work. And um, congratulations on your podcast, which is fairly new, right? Maybe only about a year old, Run Chat Live. It's Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I remember sitting back last year, last August, watching all the people kind of doing podcasts and as always being the devil's advocate, kind of slagging them off a little bit and going, oh, these people trying to get on Facebook Live. And then suddenly I went to Kenya and did some work there and has such beautiful images and videos of running with people out there. I thought, I've got to share this. And a year later, here I am putting out regular podcasts myself, kind of eating my own words. But it's a great medium and the feedback's been amazing. People do love seeing uh, especially with guests chatting and talking. It's yeah, it's a really good way of getting information out there. So yeah, thank you. I think it's such an amazing way for runners to kind of hear other runners and coaches and running form experts like yourself and authors and, you know, elite athletes just sit down and talk about the sport in, in a way that before podcasting wasn't really possible. So this is a just a, a great way to be more immersed in the sport when, you know, you're doing your strength workout or you're out for a long run, you can just pop us in your earbuds. It's great. 
Um, so Matt, we've known each other for quite a while. I was actually just kind of searching through my own website, trying to find wh where you have popped up. And I know I tapped you for an article about running form and there were I think five other running form experts so you've been a, a great friend to strength running over the years and I'm excited to chat with you today for a discussion about running form and how we can hopefully have more economical efficient strides and um, just run a little bit more effectively so maybe we could start with just this whole idea of retraining your gait because this is something that um, runners love to talk about. If you look at, you know, some of the most popular running videos on YouTube, it's all about running form. And uh, you can see that as well on uh, podcast episodes. Just running form is such a popular topic. Um, but let's talk about retraining the gait. Is this something that runners should even be trying to do in the first place? Because I've gone back and forth on this over the years. My thinking has changed a little bit. And I'm very hesitant to have runners just get out there and start tinkering with their form uh, if they don't have a reason to do so and they don't really know what they're doing. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, like you say, it's a really interesting debate. And, and yeah, we do swing backs and forwards. I think the first thing to do is to divide it up into when it comes to improving performance, then it's really tricky because re we really haven't got any concrete evidence. Um, there's so many different running forms out there. Even the elites have their variants. It's less than recreational runners. Um, it, there really is no concrete good evidence studies to show that there's one optimal way to run. Um, when it comes to reducing the risk of injury, then the data isn't that much better. But we do know that if, if we regard pain and as, 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 a, as um, a sign that certain tissues in your body is being overloaded, you've crossed thresholds, if we can change the way you run, even if it's temporarily, and reduce that pain, reduce that discomfort, um, then that can be a useful way to allow the runner to actually recover whilst still running um, and put them back into their normal capacity again. So that's definitely probably the hottest part of gait retraining that we do. Um, just tweaking form gently to load the tissues in a different way and allow the runner to um, recover quicker than if they were trying to either not run at all or continue going out there and annoying the particular tissues which have been sensitized. So, um, yeah. so is it fair to say that changes in running form are best suited for those athletes experiencing, you know, maybe chronic injuries or injuries that uh, seem to be uh, cropping up pretty frequently rather than the runner who just simply wants to run a little bit faster. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, the other, the other, definitely, if someone comes to me injured, depending on after the assessments and everything, then again, it's a pyramid thing towards the bottom of the pyramid with the heavier evidence. And the more we check is things like training load and habits um, and, and that sort of thing. They're definitely got more evidence. The running form will come somewhere in the center. Once we've covered all other aspects, once we know that the, that the, there aren't any other aggravators which are causing this, let's say, pain not to go away, uh, then we can play around with form. And then shoes is somewhere around there as well and so on. Um, but, yeah, if, if someone comes to me and every other corner is covered, so they're training well, they're stimulating the body, they're giving it time to adapt, they're eating well, they're resting well, all these factors are the most important things. Then if they're still not doing better in their PRs, they're plateauing then maybe we'll we'll have a look at their form and we can try some stuff yeah we could have a look and see well look you know a lot of runners are 
less successful with with the traits you're showing here so let's tweak this let's try this let's back it up with some strength training in the meantime because any change of running form you're going to be loading different tissues so you're going to need that strength work in theory to make sure those tissues can handle the change um but, and it's part that's where the fun starts really um, you've got an athlete in front of you, you've covered all other bases, you've had a good chat with them, and now we're going to start tweaking these little things to see if it does make a difference, giving it a six-week period to see if, if you do start running faster and attaining your goals. I really like this concept of having a pyramid, and running form is kind of in the middle, and you know, there's this big base of more evidence-based interventions that you can uh, put into a, a runner's training program, and they're safer, there's more evidence to back them up that they're actually going to produce positive results. What are some of those interventions on the bottom of the pyramid that you know we're going to look at first, and then maybe what are some things at the very top that are high risk and you should really only go after those if you know i'm standing right next to you and i have your help doing it so you'll be pleased to hear that strength is uh, an important one and that kind of makes sense it ticks lots of boxes um, if you are not able to do what you're trying to make your body do so run a certain times a week or run a certain distance or run a certain speed or up a certain incline then you you're basically hitting thresholds you've got two choices you can either reduce what you're doing which not many runners want to do or you can get your body stronger to be able to deal with what you're asking it to do um, and often simply just going out running and hammering it is not the best way to get your body stronger you could try taking it more gradually but research kind of shows that putting in some extra strength training it might not be 100 specific to running but if we choose exercises and a program which is kind of leans towards the demands of running then the we can see again it might be anecdotal because the evidence is tricky when it comes to performance but we it all ticks the boxes to make sure that um uh, we can we can make some improvements when it comes to reducing injury then the strength uh, training is definitely probably the best we've got um, again it's not 100 percent, but some very good studies um, have shown that um not specific for running but in the case of overuse injury strength training can reduce them by 50 percent the risk which is a massive statistic um the paper is not um totally waterproof because it wasn't performed just on runners but if we think about it most running injuries are repetitive in nature that's what running is so if we can do something like strength training that reduces the risk by 50 percent, that's the best we've got um, it was interesting to see in the same paper that stretching, for example, which is something I'm not a, a great fan of for this reason, didn't even show up as a preventative measure in, in, in running injuries. Uh, plyometric exercise did. So we always escalate strength training into that plyometric kind of category eventually. Um, but it's it's a good study and it's a good base because so many runners are either worried that strength training is going to make them heavier or they're just not comfortable lifting heavy weights. They just think that's not me. It's not what I'm about. I just want to go out and run. So that's the best place to start. And that's where generally the bottom of the pyramid needs to be widest. Well, you're right. I am glad to hear you say that. I've been a big proponent of runners doing more strength training, especially over the last few years, and just understanding that strength training really enables some of the harder training that runners want to do. You know, it really gives you that that armor to handle the impact forces and, you know, some of the demands of that heavy load. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about strength training as a way to guard yourself against some of these uh, injuries that may pop up if you were to start retraining your gait. You know, like I kind of think of strength training as armor. You know, it, it helps you deal with extra stress. And so when you're retraining your gait, you're experiencing more stress. Like you said, you're, you're loading your tissues in a slightly different way than what you're used to. 
Um, so let's say a runner is there. They're doing their strength training uh, with the hopes of then retraining their gait, you know, making some some tweaks and changes here and there. What are some of those tweaks that you might have a runner look at? And and specifically, I'd love to go back to one of the things you said earlier. You said, you know, there's maybe a couple things with your form that have been less successful for other runners. What are some of those less successful running form traits? And what are some of the tweaks that you might make for, you know, say this hypothetical runner? Okay, so they're all excellent questions. Um, it. First of all, the big caveat is it'll depend, obviously, as you know, on the runner that's in front of you. But one of the one of the most important things I see in a lot of runners, particularly female runners who who come to me, is that there's a big idea that being able to touch your toes is great for running. Basically, being flexible. You look at the websites and the DVDs, and everyone's trying to chuck out a swan pose or bend their leg around their head, and it's just that idea that. If you can make any range of movement larger, if you can beat through that muscle that's stopping you from getting any further, increase that range, then you must become a better athlete. So if you're try, if you're a martial artist or a dancer and you need that range, fantastic. But running really doesn't need that much range. And if runners stop for a second and think, why am I trying to touch my toes? How's that going to help me be a better runner? When am, when am I ever lengthening the hamstring that much? Um, then the coin kind of drops um sometimes it takes a bit of you know i get runners coming into me and as soon as something hurts the runners will typically say oh it's tight so a runner will come in they've got pain in the hamstring for example and they'll be holding the hamstring going i know what the problem is i don't stretch them enough and to 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 break down that kind of belief which is kind of very deep because of videos and chat and everything sometimes i'll get a runner to touch their toes five or six times before they realize and look at me from from at the floor and kind of go i haven't got tight hamstrings have i and I'm like, ah, oh, you can see what I'm doing now. The, the, the kind of message is there now. So in other words, you've actually got very flexible hamstrings, but your hamstring's hurting. How can that be? And again, again, we try to elicit it from the runner because that helps the habit change and the beliefs change. Like, So the flexibility isn't causing my pain. And it's like, well, no, it can't be because you can touch your toes. And then we start introducing the idea with a bit of education that maybe, God forbid, you're actually too flexible. And we start looking at what running actually is, which is essentially like a pogo stick. It's a spring. You're putting a foot or pushing a foot with, with great force down to the ground. You're absorbing that energy and then converting it into the propulsive elastic energy. So in actual fact, once runners get their head around the idea that they need to be a strong spring like a pogo stick and not this slinky who does very well in yoga, but not necessarily great at running, then they start thinking, OK, I actually need to get tighter. And you can back this up with the studies, which shows that amongst elite athletes, for example, there's some studies which show that the better performing of the elites actually have less sit and reach test in their hamstrings. And there's athletes who, who have measured themselves. Paula Radcliffe is a good British example I normally quote, where she actually lost hamstring flexibility during her training and, and the reaching of her, her world records. It reduced by like five centimeters of not being able to reach her toes. And this is all because you can't really have the best of both worlds normally. If you're going to be strong, spring, like a pogo stick, you're not going to be that flexible. You're actually improving mobility, which is the range you've got in the uh, the control over the range you're using in running. And because running doesn't really take much more range than walking in terms of hip extension, um, sprinting's different because your knee's obviously coming up higher. And But running really doesn't depend that much on flexibility. It's all about strength. So when a runner comes to me and they are often 
what I regard as too flexible, i.e. when they land, we're looking in on the treadmill and maybe using some software to show how much their knee is bending, how much dorsiflexion they've got on the ankle. We can we can show them that they're a bit more like a slinky than a pogo. That's the kind of analogy I use. And in order to get them stiffer, in order to get them like a pogo stick, that's where the strength training can come in. That's so interesting. And I, and I think you have just explained this idea of muscle tension and stiffness in the muscles that is so helpful for distance runners in a way that, that really resonated with me. That was maybe one of the best explanations I've heard yet. Um, you know, I, I hear you keep talking about uh, the things that help us get better form. And I think a lot of runners, in, and I was in this boat for a very long time, think that if you want to change your form, then you have to go out there and actively run differently. So I'm going to go out for my five-mile run today, and I'm going to try to do this differently. I'm going to try to land you know, a little bit closer to my body, et cetera, et cetera. But can we train ourselves to have better form without consciously trying to change our form? You know, Because I, I see this and. and my thinking has changed on this in that one of the best ways to have good running form is to train well, you know, just to make sure that you're doing the training itself that lends itself to really economical form. What do you think about that? Yeah, my, my views have changed a lot. Like 10 years ago, I remember I was very much part of the camp saying that any kind of conscious effort whilst you're running is going to waste energy. It's not you're not going to change it. It's got to come naturally. Um, and you're actually going to become less economical, so you can't do it. Um, but then kind of when you look at it, running is a, is a skill. It involves habits and blueprints. It's like anything else. And these days I kind of compare it more to, well, depend. if I've got a guitar player or a musician with me, let's take a guitar, for example. You can play the guitar. Do you play the guitar? No, I'm not very no, musical. You've got, you've got no time <laughs> to play the guitar. Um, so imagine the typical thing on a guitar is um, they'll have the thumb kind of wrapped over the top of the fretboard. Okay. And they can play the guitar and you can do it really well. But if you wanted to start playing, for example, something a little bit more intricate, some Spanish guitar, you've got to learn to be able to put that thumb behind the fretboard so you can actually push in the back. It means your fingers can get more power onto the fretboard and you can start playing better. So if we compare that analogy to running, if, for example, the demand is there so that I want to move your thumb, I'm not going to have you pushing your thumb in the back of the guitar for the whole two-hour instrumental thing that you're doing. So you're just going to start hurting and aching and you're going to get an injury. But what I will do maybe is some drills where you are actually trying to play a certain song with the thumb moved back. Only for like, well, in the case of guitar, it might be two, three minutes or something. But in the case of running, we'll give you these drills to actually practice this slightly, this very slight tweak or change. Uh, normally with an external cue, so cadence is a good example. We may have you listening to a, um, a metronome or a song, and just for 30 seconds, exposing your body to that different way of doing something. And when it comes to changing habits, there's some good research and studies that shows that as long as what you're, the, the, the change you're making on your nervous system isn't too great and sudden, as long as you expose it gradually and, and gradually increase it over time, then you, you can change habit. And that's how we learn and become more skilled at things. So I think running really is no different than that. If we are trying to change form, even if it's only temporarily to shift load away from the calves, for example, onto the knees or away from the knees onto the calves, whatever our goal is, with some little drills not all the time, but just a little 30 second building up to a minute, building up to two minutes, then I do actually get runners to do that if, if, if the need is there um, and, and I see the results. And I think studies are generally there to support that as well. 
um, over a period of time. Irene Davis has done some great studies and Rich Willey and, and all the names have shown that you can change habit and in doing so also offload pain as well, which is often what, what the reasoning behind it is. I was reading an interesting study a few days ago that was saying that the the human control over the way we move is much more uh, located in an area of our brain where we're aware of of it. And I forget the ex- exact area of the brain. Whereas if you look at, you know, the way a cat or a dog moves, it's all kind of more primal. It's more instinctual. They don't really have to think about it. And, and I think that's, you know, indicative of the fact that we can actually change how we run uh, a little bit more. You know, it's not just instinctive. It is not completely hardwired into our brain. You know, it's habits, like you said, and we can re- reframe those habits and work on them. And gradual and incremental is the name of the game in running, uh, definitely with, with adding anything new to your training program. Um, so besides like those cues, which I think are really helpful, can, can you give us actually a few examples of the cues that you might use with an athlete to improve their form? You mentioned cadence. Yeah, so sometimes, uh, again, the, 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 in terms of changing habits, research kind of shows that the external cues, the global ones, where you're actually listening to something outside of your body or, or looking at something outside the body tend to be more effective rather than, for example, an internal cue like try to put your foot down quicker or uh, try not to bend your knees or try to kind of move your legs closer towards each other. So the external cues we might use when someone is running um, with or without a visual stimulus so if we can do it on a treadmill with a mirror then all the better um, but even if they're outside um, some cues we might use are let's imagine a runner has got too much vertical oscillation so a lot of the time runners are bouncing up and down too much so they're wasting energy they think they're running 5k but they're actually running six because they're traveling that high up in the air um, if we find that that is causing them for example maybe some lower leg problems and and uh we think we can reduce that oscillation to reduce that we might give a simple cue like just concentrating on the horizon for example it's a very easy one you make the runner aware of what they're doing and then for 30 seconds or so they just kind of stop the horizon from bouncing up and down quite so much that automatically globally will give them or their body will adjust in whatever way seems natural to their body which is the great thing about global cues different runners will do it in different ways so it's, it's more natural than telling them to, to try and do something internal. But the, at the end of the day, vertical oscillation will reduce. And, and therefore, if we're trying to reduce a load of impact or something, then that will have the knock-on effect. So that's quite a nice, simple one. Um, also, we can have the um, a, narrow, a narrow step width has been shown uh, in some cases to be uh, connected with uh, ITB strain and, and tibial tension. So again, we can use an external cue sometimes, just a simple line on a road uh, or along the promenade or beach or something where for 30 seconds you will um, run either side of that line consciously. Again, it's kind of external because you're not thinking I need just to push my legs wider. You've actually got a visual where you're running either side of the line. And again, the research kind of supports me and research that increasing your step width by kind of an inch or so can reduce load on the tibia and on the uh, tensor fascia lata and therefore reduce ITB pain. So that's another example of an external cue we might get them to do. And then cadence is the big one, which is kind of one of my favorites. Um, not always to speed up cadence. It may well be to slow down cadence, but using that external metronome just for little doses as well can can uh, be used as a tool to um, offload tissues if that's what we're trying to do. Or it, it maybe try to increase performance if you think that what that's what might help. 
Now, how about training interventions that will reinforce good running form habits? So not actual cues, but things that we could do in training like uh, form drills or, you know, strength training is one of them. Can that reinforce good form habits? Uh, things like high mileage or certain types of speed workouts. What, what are the things that runners do on, you know, a fairly regular basis that lend themselves to us developing better form? So, yeah, I mean, anything, any cues you can do whilst the runner's running is, is going to be fantastic. So um, hills can often be used for this. We can use um, uphill running, for example, to try to increase that cadence. Um, we can use it to try and uh, change the part of the foot they're landing on. Um, I think hills are very good as well for runners who have a tendency to to not be very tall because on a hill, especially in the bad weather, which in, in Brighton in the UK we, we know all too well about, there's a tendency to kind of bend at the waist and lean forwards because you're protecting your face from the wind. Um, and often even if it's not bad weather, then we can use that as a cue for runners to actually find, for example, not right at the end of the hill because that's going to be just too intimidating, but set yourself a mark like a lamppost or a car halfway up the hill and just stand tall and look at that and run forwards. Um, so you, the demand of the hill kind of warms you to think about what you're doing to stand tall. Um, so that can be a useful uh, drill uh, to kind of avoid that flexion at the waist and kind of loading onto the knees. Um, downhill running as well can be fantastic for um, changing form as well, especially when you're playing around with cadence, uh, being aware of your arms. Um, the sky's the limit, really. It's really is a case of, and this is something that good coaches will do, is just looking at the athlete and working out a way, um, working out a game, maybe a metaphor, something that the athlete can identify with and getting them to do that. I think a lot about variety when I think about developing good form habits. Um, you know, you mentioned hills. I think hills are just fantastic for uh, building those good form habits because it's it's pretty hard to have bad running form when you are trying to charge up a steep hill, you know, pretty hard. Um, I'm also aware that lifestyle habits can really affect our uh, running form, our posture, generally how we carry ourselves. And specifically, I'm thinking about sitting down. And this has gotten some press over the last couple of years with, you know, this idea that prolonged sitting is not just poor for our longevity, but, you know, it actually has some negative impacts on our running form. What are your thoughts on this uh, idea of prolonged sitting impacting our form? Yeah, it's a very interesting one. And again, it's something that I'm, I'm happy to say my views have changed over the years as I've read more and experienced more and seen more runners. It's tricky. I mean, it it is it's overplayed a lot. I mean, by therapists in particular, um, sitting down will not actually make your muscles shorter or tighten you up. If not, we would all be walking around or get up from a chair in the shape of a chair. Um, in terms of people in pain, it's it's important putting on your therapist head not to make people worried about their bodies, not to give them the impression that they're actually being bent out of position, that they're badly aligned. Um, it's used a lot in the therapy world, often sadly, because if you are bent out of line, then you'll pay people a lot of money to unbend you. And that's where the whole kind of manual therapy business kind of uh, can make a lot of money. Um, if you can convince somebody that their body is robust, it adjusts, it's plastic, sitting in a chair is not going to bend you out of shape, then you're more likely to help people out of pain, more likely to get them back on the road. So with the therapy head, it's important to to, to bear this in mind and not, people, not make people think that 
you know, sitting on a chair can change tissue length, just the same as laying your hands on somebody can't change the tissue length. Um, all this idea of, of, of bending, lengthening muscles using special techniques is, is way too scary. Imagine if physical therapists could actually do that to you, just grab your leg and change the length of it. It would be, I mean, no, it just like doesn't magic. work that way. Yeah. Oh, it would be, be very scary. There would be a whole different range of criminals out there kind of. What we what we do know is your body will hold itself according to, again, habit, the nervous system, the blueprints, what it's exposed to. We know that the brain has a kind of use it or lose it principle, not lose it forever, but in the sense that if you don't use a particular nervous pathway or system, then it becomes dull, it becomes inhibited, it becomes blurred, and it's it's more difficult to use that pathway again. And often in the case of pain, if, if blurred pathways um, are being uh, are present, then pain tends to be outputted a little bit more as well so when it comes to the seated debate it's it's the most interesting thing for me which i try and push is out of the research you mentioned there was that famous running uh sitting is the new cancer it's worse than smoking that actual research was just making the point that if you choose to sit down eight nine hours a day at work what you do in the morning in that morning run and what you do in the evening is not really going to be enough to make any difference. If you're sitting down for eight or nine hours at work, you are already making the changes metabolic in your body, which aren't definitely going to give you cancer, but they, together with other factors, increase the risk. So at the end of the day, the message again goes back to simplicity. It goes back to common sense. If you're a runner, you can't and you want to be the best you can be. Do yourself a favor and don't sit down for eight hours during the day. You know, even if you've got a very intense office job, take the opportunity to stand up every 45 minutes, 45 minutes, um, have a move around, walk to the printer. Just keep your body turning over because that whole motion is lotion and motion is the kind of um, secret to well-being. You've got to do that all day long. Um, the answer is not standing at a desk either for eight hours because there was a, um, a, a time when people thought, oh, I'm not sitting anymore, I'm standing. But we know that standing brings its own problems as well because you're being motion. Whilst you're not moving, your metabolism isn't working as well. So the, for me, for runners, when we're looking at lifestyle, it's it's not complicated. The same as diet, really. It never should be complicated. Just try and limit the amount of time you're not moving. Your best posture is your next posture. There's no such thing as a good posture. Um, just move around, get your job done, but don't think you can just correct a nine hours sedentary by running your heart out in the morning or the evening. It doesn't really work that way. You're, you're living 24 hours a day, not just kind of two. <laughs> That's a good point. And yeah, my, my thinking has changed on this over the years as well. And I'm, I'm kind of more in, in the camp that you described where, you know, standing is not really the answer. Um, but sitting down for nine hours a day uh, during your job and then coming home at night and spending another two hours sitting at dinner and then on the couch at night, you know, that's a lot of sitting. And um, I, I've kind of gone from this either or all or nothing perspective to one of moderation and variety. And so we're recording this right now and I'm standing at my standing desk in my office. Um, but people are probably going to be surprised to hear that I don't stand very often at my standing desk. And it's really about giving me the option to stand up when I've been sitting for a while. And then when I want to sit, I can sit in a regular chair that I have in my office, or I have this crazy stool that <laughs> I sit on that kind of bends back and forward and it goes all the way around. 
and for me that's just fun i get to i get to just play with my movement throughout the day and i'm not just in the same position all day long and i think that's the important part it's just some variety putting yourself in different positions like you said we remember our bodies remember the positions we put ourselves in and if we're constantly hunched over a computer and then when we're not hunched over a computer we're hunched over our phone on the couch then you know that's just not a recipe for being the athlete that i think we're all trying to be um, let's transition a little bit and talk about shoes i think shoes are are another interesting way of talking about running form um, if we were talking maybe 10 years ago you know i'd be holding up my book born to run you know kind of pounding my chest about barefoot running but again my thinking has really evolved on this topic over the years um, so let's talk about minimalism maybe some barefoot running um, what are your thoughts on these methods for uh, reinforcing good form and building some some strength in our feet and lower legs that will help us a have better form and mitigate some of the effects of tweaking our form it's it's a fascinating one it really is the whole subject of shoes um it's i mean your decision to to make a business on strength running and strength is fantastic because there's been so many other websites which have had to close down like 180cadence.com or you know all these kind of fads which have come and gone over the years but strength has always been there and, and that's because obviously it's it's it stays relevant and important whatever the studies show so when it comes to shoes we hop backwards and forwards Again, based on the evidence we've got, shoes has to sit up there quite kind of high in the pyramid in the sense that we haven't got a lot of good evidence for it. Um, we can't really make any solid judgments and decisions because the evidence isn't there. Um, what we can say is if you have less of a shoe, as in if you move towards more minimalist shoe, then yes, you're going to be working the muscles um, in your feet and lower legs principally. Um, you're going to be working them more, um, which in theory is going to be better for running. The only thing, it depends again on the person. If the person's feet either, or if the person's lower leg and calves, for example, aren't designed to take that much load and they're, they're going to be a better runner using other parts of their body maybe using more maybe a, um, a slower cadence maybe landing more towards the heel then wearing a strengthening these muscles in the lower leg aren't necessarily going to do any harm it, it may just do them, be worse for them not everybody is designed to be running midfoot or forefoot and we know that because we even the pictures we've got of the elites and the great photos that we've now got thanks to people like ian hunter and pete larson and we see even the elites land with glancing heel strikes and the, the variety is massively there so personally i'm not convinced that everybody should assume that they need to wear as least shoe as possible I think the intro, I had an interesting chat the other day with um, J.F. Escoulier um, of the running clinic with Blaise Dubois. Obviously, they've got a reputation for being very in favor of barefoot, and they've probably calmed down a little bit since, like you say, the born to run days. But they kind of make the important distinction between imagine if we start with a novice runner. Okay, what are we going to give that novice runner who's got no prior history of running? And J.F. made the interesting point, which I, I thought about. If they go to a shoe shop, they're automatically going to be give, given a heavier, clunkier shoe. There's this idea that if you've never run before, a clunkier shoe is going to be better for you. The more cushiony is going to protect you more. It's going to reduce injury. There's no evidence for that at all. No evidence at all. So you are just as 
in your right to give a runner a less structured shoe you wouldn't put them straight into a five fingers or something but give them something which is not the traditional prescription give them something with maybe a four mil drop something with a wider toe box something less structured on the midsole um because if we can start runners off that way with 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 um without that cushioning without that conditioning so that they are actually going to be strengthening their feet in a running way day from day one as long as we manage loads and we make sure that their training plans are, 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 are being supervised then yeah it makes sense to move away from this traditional shoe and, and give them something a little bit more minimalist when we track them it may turn out that that's great they've got the tissue thresholds and they've got the running gait to support maybe moving a little bit more minimalist and this is where i think jf's minimalist index which he produced as part of his phd is useful and something i'm definitely going to be using with runners more and more where he's labeled or hundreds and hundreds of shoes have been classified on the minimalist index and he's very quick to point out just because it's more minimalist doesn't mean that's the best shoe on the market your body your tissues your running form your style of living that your work day may mean you're better off in a less minimalist shoe or you may be better off in a high minimalist shoe but having that structure or that design to choose a shoe is far more beneficial than the traditional outproven uh sorry outdated um overpronated uh over supinating neutral shoe which needs to be kind of nailed tight in a box and thrown away um but at the end of the day the most important thing is remember that you can get injured in any shoe and the shoe you wear the effect it's going to have does at the moment just sit quite high up in the pyramid in terms of of, of low evidence so cover all bases first uh, get the right advice and the education do your strength work etc and then kind of play around with the shoe otherwise you'll just end up with the other 50 to 80 percent of runners who think that this shoe is going to save them from injury and it doesn't because they're not doing any of the other work yeah i think there's a lot of emphasis on your shoe selection as a runner and they think that you know if only i have the right shoe then i'm going to get that bq time and i'm never going to get injured again um, one of the things that I've been recommending to runners a lot, and this has been pretty constant in my coaching practice, is to rotate their shoes and to run in a variety of different shoes so that their feet and lower legs are just experiencing slightly different stresses on their feet. And, you know, I was saying this before there was any science or studies backing it up. And it's probably where, you know, coaching is usually part science and part art. And then there was a study that came out and said, hey, rotating your shoes actually does have a, a slight injury prevention benefit to it. Um, how do you how would you think about this in terms of deciding what kind of shoes to to put on a runner? I know it's highly individual based on, you know, what feels good when they're out there running. But, you know, is is this an area where, you know, a majority of runners should have a motion control shoe, a support shoe and a minimalist shoe? Or do we not need that much variation? It's an interesting one. And, and uh, yeah, JF, JF actually pulled me up on this one. Um, the, the paper did come out and I like your analogy of coaching being um, half science, half art. It's so true. Um, but the, the the study that came out, um, which uh, suggested that rotation of shoe could reduce injury risk, it was actually it's been used too much. It wasn't a great study. Um, it, it, it was just one study alone. Um, and a lot of people who, like myself, 
who have a, a bias towards embracing variety kind of jumped on it and thought, I knew it. Um, we all need to be rotating our shoes. Um, there were caveats in the study showing that um, it doesn't work for all runners and um, some people should just stick to the shoe they've got, et cetera, et cetera. It's the, the one thing that um, JF made me stop in my tracks and kind of go, yeah, you got me there, haven't you, is if you're wearing this, if you find a shoe that works for you and you're wearing the same shoe and stressing the same tissues, then I, I suggested that this is a bad thing because it's a bit like clicking a mouse where you're just using the same forearm muscles to click that mouse day after day and eventually they're going to kind of hurt and get uh, sensitized. And he came back with, yeah, or they're going to adapt and get stronger. So you don't want to rotate your shoes too much or you're not actually going to strengthen the, the muscles you use in running. You're going to be hopping over the place and kind of become a jack of all trades. So when it comes to rotating of shoes, he kind of made the valid point. And I've definitely changed my advice a little bit now of of have your go to pair of shoes. And if you really want to strengthen those muscles and expose them to different forces, you might be better off kind of playing around with surfaces more. Um, as in rather than putting on different pairs of shoes, just playing around with like off-road or on-road or maybe a bit of sand, um, that sort of stuff to, to get that variety. Um, it's an interesting one. Variety makes so much sense, but again, there's not a lot of evidence to support it. It just kind of makes sense on paper to us. So I definitely recommend different shoes um, if you're, again, in pain or, or I like I've got a particular pair of shoes that I'll wear if I start getting a bit of kind of habitual knee pain that I suffer from. And I know that if I put those shoes on, anecdotal evidence it may be, but I'll run for another week or so and the knee pain's gone. I'll go back to my favorite pair of shoes. So it's the same as kind of inserts and that. I think we know that as soon as you put a different shoe on your foot, you're going to expose the tissues in a different way, which is going to be a good thing if your tissues are overloaded and you're suffering from pain. So play around with shoes but uh, my advice would be stick to the one which kind of works for you um, and maybe make more of an emphasis on on again the research kind of suggests that some runners are going to be more likely to get injured maybe off-road than on-road so unless you're training for a marathon or an ultra or something which is off-road if, if you're happy staying on road and you're just going to do on-road marathons no point it's like if it's not broken don't try and fix it just don't run off-road it's kind of a bit like that uh, we don't have to be good at everything. We might find that our bodies is best at one type of surface or one type of shoe. Why change it? You know, it depends on what our, our goals are. Yeah, I like saying if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, there's no yeah. reason to to start tweaking something if you don't have any problems. And you know, one of the lessons I've learned about running form in a very general perspective from a very high level is simply if you're not having any big problems in your running, you know, if you don't have a big injury history, you're not very prone to injuries, if you're kind of gradually improving over time, there's probably no reason to start tweaking your form and to do all kinds of different things. It sounds like, you know, for this hypothetical runner, what they're doing is working and they should just continue to do that. They don't need to, you know, try to change how they're running and all that. You know, when it comes to shoes, I always like to look at elite athletes because, 
you know, they're training in a lot of different shoes. You know, they race in different shoes that they train in. And, you know, with me having a track and cross-country background in high school and college, you know, we kind of had to wear a variety of shoes. And there was always that first cross-country race of the season after your summer base building where, you know, you've, you, you do your first 8K cross-country race in spikes and your calves and your soleus are on fire for a couple days afterward because you're not used to it. And then after, you know, a couple weeks, it gets better. And I can't help but think that, you know, wearing a more minimalist shoe for workouts or races does give you that an added element of strength to have better form. Because when you're running at race pace, your form is a little different. You know, you were saying earlier how, you know, not everyone is meant to land with a midfoot strike. And that's completely true, partly because landing with a midfoot strike requires more strength. You're you're in a more upright, tall position. You're you're not kind of relying on your skeletal system for upholding your weight. You're really relying on your muscles and more connective tissues. And and that's kind of the position that you're in when you're racing. You're in that more upright, midfoot striking, faster um, type of form. And wearing your flats or your spikes for workouts, uh, I think can give you a lot of um, uh, experience with those more aggressive uh, styles of running, that more aggressive technique. And and that's going to help you be more comfortable running fast and racing fast. Is that something that that you can buy into? Or do you think I'm crazy? No, no. I mean, again, the proof's in the put. It's like, I mean, even I think... I think there's, there's even an argument. I'm not sure if it's conspiracy theory or not. I don't think there's any stats on it. But I think a lot of the time the elites do train in a more minimalist shoe than they actually put on on race day. Um, and and like JF was saying for the other day on the podcast that this this may well be because when it comes to race day, there's an awful lot suddenly of sponsorship and and what they put on their shoe on their foot is going to be seen. And 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 so I think the size of shoe which we've basically accepted as being necessary is 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 an overstatement we know that if you can catch a runner from the beginning or definitely an athlete a young athlete who shows promise then yes stick them in a minimalist shoe um, because um, they're going to develop that strength like you said over time especially if they're part of a team where they're kind of it's being monitored and they're being exposed you know sensibly when it comes to recreational runner we've got to be a little bit more careful because that recreational runner may well do a one of these jantastic challenges of running every day in january for example when they haven't run you know two days in a row for the whole of their lives so we've got if we're going to advise people on shoes and which i think you know something we can do then we've got to give people like we give them a strength training plan we've got to give them a running plan as well to use that shoe in but yeah i'm very much in favor of of a of a lighter shoe it makes sense on paper it's just remembering that at the end of that lighter shoe is a person with emotions and a, and a brain that might not be so rational, uh, especially if they're a runner. Yeah, one of the things I, I think about often is just how grateful I am in hindsight that I started running for a cross-country team when I was younger. And just by the nature of the team and the coach and how we did things, I was you know, running in trainers most of the time, but I was also doing uh, barefoot running drills and barefoot strides and uh, doing some workouts in flats and racing in flats or spikes. And so I was just exposed to all of these different 
um, methods of, of training and different types of footwear. And I think that did develop strength and an ability for me to kind of go back and forth between shoes without uh, a big problem. And, you know, I kind of wish, you know, everyone could start like that because I think it's just a great introduction to the sport of running. Um, but Matt, how maybe old we could you have been then? I'm sorry? How old were you? How, what age were you when you were talking about this? Uh, young, I was man. a freshman in high school, so 14 when yeah, I first started. So, but how many, if we look at the average age of people going in for marathons and things, recreational runners these days, there's certainly not a lot of 14-year-olds. So I think yeah. it's important as well. If you can catch the, your recovery rate when you were a 14-year-old, was, we all know what it was like. It was ridiculous. You could throw yourself around, beat yourself up, um, and the next day you're up ready for more. Yeah. So it's again, it's very much specific on the athlete is in front of you. Sure. Um, yeah. We, I don't think we can take a, you know, 40, 50 year old uh, hopeful marathoner and, and start doing the same things that we do with a th 14 or 15 year old who has incredible levels of testosterone coursing through their bodies and they're recovering like elite athletes. So they, they certainly have a hormonal profile that is just there for recovery. Um, Matt, this is so interesting. I love talking to you about running form, and we could probably just sit here for hours and hours going into detail on things. But um, I want to end with talking about some of the things that you've changed your mind on over the last five to 10 years, because I think this is really indicative of someone who's paying attention to uh, the science that's being published. And, you know, you're actually working with athletes and you're seeing what works in the real world. Um, so you mentioned a couple things earlier, but I'd love for you to either reiterate or go into more detail on those. Um, things that have changed. I think uh, cadence is a big one that I've I noticed fairly quickly. See, the advantage. Well, it's an advantage and a disadvantage. I'm a natural kind of cynic, devil's advocate. As soon as something starts getting popular and I see it flooding the social media, I'll look for ways to kind of disprove it. I'll look for ways to find the kind of chinks in the armor. It's just, I've done it all my life. And in terms of of running and and looking at the evidence, it's quite useful because you do start naturally kind of critiquing stuff so when cadence for example became very popular speeding up cadence was the go-to thing you go to any gate in that well i'm exaggerating because a lot of people were still just using gate analysis to fit shoes but the step up from moving away from overpronation suddenly everybody was like oh overpronation doesn't exist but let's improve your cadence let's speed up your cadence um for a while I was there as well, and it was very interesting, but I kind of realized that there's probably just as many runners out there who need their cadence slowed down, um, and this became very evident, I think, in the, and I'm talking probably now going back maybe six, seven years or something, um, the amount of runners I would see, I mean, I, I love walking along the seafront, I live by the sea, so a lot of the time I'm just walking along the seafront, and I'm overtaking runners, because they're like turning over 180 steps per minute thinking that they're like kind of you know some some fantastic elite runner but they're not moving at all the legs are moving over like speeding Gonzales, but their cadence is too fast for the force they can generate each time they put their foot down so there came a point i remember when uh, again my bias probably meant i was going too far the other way but i was noticing that a lot of runners have just got too high a cadence um, the 180 kind of magic number fueled this for a while um, eventually we managed to get rid of that idea and the, and the videos out there started disappearing offline this idea that everyone should be running at 180 steps a minute but there's still an awful lot of runners out there who are running let's say less than a 10 minute mile which you'll have to do a conversion to kilometers but um if you're a slower recreational runner with like a four four and a half hour marathon time 
the chances are you're not going to be running with a cadence of much higher than 165, 170 maximum. Um, and a lot of runners uh, are being told these days that the solution to their problems is speed up the cadence. And um, a lot of the time to, to, to work on that, 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 that power, which we're talking about to, to improve that elastic recoil of landing on the ground, you've actually got to slow your cadence down and concentrate a little bit more on strengthening that hip extension from, from the knee all the way down to the ground and driving back and then work on picking the cadence up or maybe the cadence will pick up gradually later on. So that's a big thing that's changed over the years. I think my dependence on uh, speeding up cadence is often the opposite to what actually needs to be done. I actually have a, a general rule of thumb for cadence and, um, you know, I like to tell runners, if you're running slower than 10 minutes a mile, you know, you definitely have to forget about 180 steps a minute. It's not going to happen. You know, cadence is largely a function of how fast you're running. And so if you're, if you if you run four minute mile pace, your cadence is probably going to be 220 steps a minute, 230 steps a minute. And that's normal because you're running that fast. And so if you're slower than 10 minutes a mile for your easy running pace, then, you know, let's, let's get you to at least 160, but somewhere between 160 and 170 is probably where you want to be. But if you're someone who's running faster than 10 minutes a mile, 930 or faster for your easy pace, then you probably want to be somewhere over 170 steps a minute, especially if you're more like eight minutes a mile or even faster than that. So that's kind of a very general way that I like to think about cadence. And, and again, like you keep saying, it's so individual and it definitely matters what type of runner we're talking about, whether they're experiencing a lot of injuries but you know thinking about cadence as a function of speed and having some kind of tiers of cadence based on where that runner is at i found to be much more helpful than simply saying let's get you to 180 because jack daniel saw a bunch of elite runners run around a track at 180 steps a minute um, because we're not elite runners and you know we're all very different and, and unique with our biomechanics yeah definitely and and i think the danger is like we talk about it as if it's common knowledge now, but again, we tend to surround ourselves on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook with with people who, who are reading the same stuff as us. And we assume that runners out there kind of have access and know about all this stuff. But you only have to read and listen. What was I listening to the other day? I was listening to, do you listen to Joe Rogan podcast? Occasionally, you know Joe yeah. Rogan. Yeah, so he's he was he was chatting to uh, Eddie Izzard, who's a British comedian who's done like 52 back-to-back marathons and stuff, and a lot of um, uh, he's a very talented endurance runner, um, especially as he doesn't look the part at all. But Joe Rogan, who I like listening to, was coming out with a classic. Oh yeah, but the problem was people land on their heel, and that's no way. We were born to land on our toes. The answer is everyone's got to land on their toes, and you've got to run with a cadence of 180. And it's like I'm thinking, geez, this guy has got the highest-ranking podcast in the whole of the world. And, and everybody listening to it now is going to take it as gospel truth. He's like undoing all the work I've done for the last eight years. Yeah, but that's the power of the podcast. media out there. Exactly. With one podcast, because the powers that be out there, the stuff, the magazines, the DVDs, um, and particularly the social media, the content that goes out is still continuously undoing the bit which we play. And, and even with a massively successful website like yours with, um, I, I have no idea what the traffic is, but I'm sure it's huge. There's still an awful lot, a huge amount of runners out there who just haven't got access to the information, which is why we've got to keep pumping it out. Yes, Matt. That's one of the things I'm, I'm trying to do to unravel all of these 
poor ideas or habits that runners have. And you've certainly helped me with that today. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm always really interested in hearing what you have to say because I find it to be very measured, very evidence-based, and also just a hefty dose of common sense. And and with you delivering it with that wonderful British accent, it's just, can you get any better than that? I'm not quite sure about my British accent. I, I listen to myself back sometimes, especially when I'm talking to an American um, um, interviewer or podcaster, and it's just, I mean, the same respect goes over to you guys. You've got better vocabulary, your diction is better. Um, yeah, so I guess it's the grass is greener. It's one of those things, isn't it? Well, come on. Every American knows that the British accent is just a very intoxicating accent to listen to. I, it doesn't matter what you're saying. I will just sit there and really? and listen, and it's just incredible. So anyway, Matt, I'm, I'm kind of gushing over a British accent here. <laughs> but thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. And uh, I know I mentioned it before, but I want to give you a plug at the end here. Uh, your podcast, Run Chat Live, is this available anywhere? Apple Music? Is it on Spotify? Yeah, the, um, the podcast is everywhere you'd expect to see it, and just the Run Chat Live. Um, and the podcast is taking a bigger turn now. The, the reception has been so great that we're actually organizing a real life. Because I, I still like to keep things real. I'm very much in favor of podcasts and digital and sharing things over the cameras and stuff. But I still think you can't uh, beat face-to-face conferences and actually meeting people live. So um, I've organized a, the first of hopefully many international running conferences in my hometown, Brighton, um, for this October um, and there's details on the runchatlive.com website, but I've managed to get people who I'm sure you're familiar with and spoken to, like Simon Bartold, uh, Chris Johnson, J.F. Escoulier, uh, Ian Griffiths. I've got 10 fantastic speakers of that caliber, all under the same roof um, for runners to and therapists and coaches uh, to come and see and listen to. And we're going to do a massive question time thing as well, 90 minutes and two days, where it gives a chance for the audience just to fire questions face to face with these with these great names um because i'm still i want to do my bit to support that face to face knowledge as well and you as a coach know that i mean you can't train an athlete you can help them often online but at the end of the day it's that face to face communication isn't it that makes us human yeah and you've really brought together some some of the best running form experts that you know you can really get so the ability for i missed out on one there's one i couldn't get who's the who's that or it's yourself. Oh, I, I, hit my, time. <laughs> I hit my international quota. Guys, it's, a, it's an expensive flight all the way. I'm not sure what Denver Brighton is, but don't talk to me about uh, Australia or Seattle or Canada. But yeah, next time um, you should be in that list. Let's just put it that way. But I can only pick 10. Well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. And uh, I hope everyone checks out runchatlive.com. And also, if anyone is either in the UK or wants to travel to the UK, the conference this October looks really, really interesting. So thank you, Matt. That's amazing. Thank you. And thanks for all the work you do as well. Hey, everyone. Jason here one more time. I hope this discussion was interesting, actionable, and gave you one or two ideas to implement in your training to help improve your running. That's why this podcast exists, to give you practical training strategies for improvement. So if you like improving, you're in the right place. And don't miss that form cues guide that I mentioned earlier. You can get it at strengthrunning.com slash cues, and I'll send over the cheat sheet of my three favorite cues. These are simple to implement ways of automatically improving your form. Now I wanna add, if you're consistently getting better and you don't have a history with injuries, you probably don't want to tweak your form. Actively changing what's clearly working for you might actually reduce your economy and cause an injury. 
So retraining your stride is not always a good idea, but if your performances have plateaued, you have more injuries than you'd like, it might be a good idea to start experimenting. Use our cues cheat sheet at strengthrunning.com slash cues to get started. Thank you for listening and being part of this incredible running community. You're the reason I do what I do. We'll talk soon.